0: With your host, Nick Jaworski.
1: We bring you the business of recovery because those
0: struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today.
1: Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. This is Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social, a strategic marketing consulting forum for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today I have on the amazing Doug Tiemann. Uh, he is uh, CEO and soon to be transitioning out CEO of Karen. And he is going to talk to us about what he's seen in the field over the past couple of decades, what Karen has learned, how they've changed, um, opportunities for growth in the field and kind of his vision of what he calls a need for radical change in some directions, and just a really wonderful discussion overall with a wealth of knowledge. Before we get into that conversation, I want to hear from our sponsors. Track 9 Informatics is a data-driven approach to substance use disorder and mental health treatment. By assessing nine pathology and resilience factors that have been scientifically shown to be most critical to client success each week, Track 9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating which client symptoms, provides facility-specific clinical outcome analytics compared to national averages, and learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure, all of which help your program improve client outcomes, support payer negotiations, and reduce AMAs. To get a free consultation on how this data-driven approach can improve your program, call 833 998 7229 or email contact at track9.com. So Doug will talk a lot about you know his experience in the field, what he's seen change, what he thinks the vision of moving forward is. I also liked he had a really strong perspective on knowing who Karen is, and what he mentions is doubling down on the successful aspects of Karen, rather than being everything to everyone, something that I think is really important for providers to understand more and more, especially as the space continues to become increasingly competitive. He also at the end goes and walks us through succession planning. So there was um, a long process that Karen went through. And so Brad Sorte is, is coming on CEO. You know, he's taking over shortly here. And that was a very intentional, well thought out process that I think is really valuable for providers to understand. So, right at the end of the conversation, we get into that. So, with that, let's jump in. Really appreciate you coming on, Doug. Super excited to have you here. I'm sure everyone already knows who you are, but you know, just in case anyone doesn't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Karen?
0: Sure. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Nick. Uh, Doug Teeman been president and CEO of Karen for the last 26 years, and I've been in the field for it's hard to believe almost 40 years now. Uh, Karen is uh, one of our nation's oldest and largest nonprofit uh, substance abuse treatment centers, headquartered in. Wernersville, Pennsylvania uh, we also have residential sites in Florida and then offices in uh, New York City Philadelphia DC and Atlanta
1: so you guys have a you know really large operation excellent reputation been in the field for a long time and as you said you've seen treatment really evolve over the you know past couple of decades here. I'm interested, and in, we've had this conversation a little bit before, what have you really seen change? What do you think is important about the changes that have happened, particularly from like the clinical end of things? Yeah, that, you
0: know, as I think back to uh, 40 years ago, uh, the, the substance abuse treatment field was really a very niche outlier, uh, whether it was healthcare, social services, um, and not know, a lot of people weren't real sure what it was. Uh, Obviously, if you think about, uh, you know, early 80s, a lot of stigma, a lot of misinformation, disinformation about it. So as I think about first, just from a public policy perspective, we've come a long ways with uh, the levels of acceptance and understanding and realization that this isn't you know, some uh, 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 social economic problem with the people on the other side of the track. It now impacts every aspect of our society, so that has been a good thing, and also uh, the other very positive piece has been to see how this field has migrated towards uh, the medical community and now seen as an illness uh, being talked about by physicians, being considered by healthcare systems part of Um, insurance contracts. So that has been a positive evolution. I think we still have a long ways to go and we'll probably talk about some of the things that still need to be done, but but that's certainly been a, a positive.
1: What do you think about the medical community? You know, when we do internal trainings with the staff, one of the things I talk about is the different trajectories of, you know, addiction treatment versus behavioral mental health care versus the medical community. And really, when we talk about the integration, it wasn't there in part because the medical community really rejected addiction treatment, right? They weren't willing to work with it or deal with it. And so I'm curious about how you've seen that relationship change over time.
0: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, th- I think, by and large, um, the medical community looked down on individuals who suffered from this illness, didn't understand it. And and a a, a big part of that goes back to uh, medical training. Uh, very well documented how little training uh, the typical physician receives in the area of substance use dis- disorder. Um, and I, I remember talking to many uh, physicians whose, you know, Really, only exposure was oftentimes doing a rotation in the emergency room, and they kind of saw the you know the person with the alcohol or drug issue as kind of clogging up the emergency room for other you know good patients that should be getting help and 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 this individual who was suffering from an alcohol or drug issue was clogging up the system. So certainly have made some significant progress in training at the medical school. still not enough. Uh, I've been really fortunate to, to see uh, Karen being involved in in medical student training, physician training, uh, even fellowship program um, you know, with one of the very few uh, uh, ACGME-approved uh, uh, fellowship programs in the country because we need to do a whole lot more in training um, physicians. Most physicians really don't want to deal with this. They're more aware of it today, but it's still it's something that they would prefer to not have to deal with. It makes them uncomfortable. Uh, they don't have the information. Uh, and while we've made progress, we have a far more to do. I mean, in a perfect world, uh, the, the first step for somebody in the recovery process would be your primary care physician being knowledgeable enough, just like they are uh, it, with other illnesses, to be able to detect something that seems um, amiss, and send you to a specialist, just like they would for, you know, an an oncologist or digestive disease or an ENT or, you know, all of these other uh, areas of specialty. It would be wonderful if they could uh, uh, have the same uh, level of of detecting ability and send uh, an individual to an addictionologist, uh, someone who, uh, you know, an American Society of Addiction Medicine physician who can then determine uh, what is the you know, what is your diagnosis, and what kind of treatment do you need?
1: Yeah, I'm always really surprised in the lack of referrals coming from PCPs and general practitioners, you know, in the space because they often are the front line, right? And what I've found, and we see this pretty consistently when we talk to them, is that they still kind of take this very uh, medical approach to the problem. And they just say, okay, well, you know, nowadays you're struggling with addiction. And so here, take this pill, you know, that's going to help out. Or they'll do a screening even on the behavioral health end. You know, I had a friend that went to the doctor a couple weeks ago. And she, you know, went through, they now do kind of really basic behavioral health and depression screens. You know, so the doctor's like, yo, you're feeling really sad. You know, I think you're depressed. I, I, I need to write you a prescription. And she's like, well, You know, things have been a little bit rough lately, but I'm fine. You know, he's like, no, 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 I got to write you this prescription. And that was kind of his answer. Whereas what I would like to see is, you know, them referring off to a professional, like you said, that they do for any other, you know, specialty issue where they would go through a real behavioral health screen or a real addiction treatment screen and then get appropriate care rather than, you know, these quick, you know, I saw you for five minutes, I asked you three questions, and so here's a prescription. You know, it seems... Seems um, less than effective. So, from your perspective, how do you, how do you see that evolving, or what do you think needs to be done to foster that integration a little bit more deeply?
0: Yeah, I I think it really boils down to physician training. Uh, you're you're absolutely right because because if a if if a doctor isn't trained in something, they it, it, the, the classic is exactly what happens is they they treat prescribe for uh, the symptoms they don't deal with the illness that might be there and I don't know if this is correct or not but I was just recently reading an article didn't follow up to see it but according to an article I recently read said that only one out of four physicians have had and even a a, a mediocre level of training to deal with substance use disorder and I've read some other uh, you know, pieces you know, from the American Society of Addiction Medicine and, and others involved with behavioral health that, again, talk about just the incredible lack of training. So what needs to happen is you know our med schools need to you know, undertake this as a, you know, something that is really critical. We need to increase significantly the number of people that uh, um, know, that do have ASIM qualifications. I know that there's been a real push for institutions like Karen to have ACGME uh, programs, and and, uh, that's the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education, which means that, you know, know, a physician can come to for a program for one year uh, with a fellowship. It requires money to do that and training and staff to be able to do that, but at the end of the year, they then can go and uh, sit and get boarded in addiction medicine and i'm you know happy to say that we've had 100 percent you know success rate with every fellow that we've had come through our program has has indeed uh passed on their on their first passed their boards on their first uh test and and more facilities need to do that there's just not nearly enough asam um accredited uh physicians in our in our country and that would make a huge Uh, you know, huge difference. I I guess they always say, be careful what you ask for. So even right now, if if our primary care physicians uh, were really good at doing what we just talked about, making a referral, there aren't enough um, uh, boarded um, uh, ASAM doctors out there to handle all the people. So we, you know, so we've just got a, a real training problem in our country that needs to be a priority and and, and those are the kind of things that I'm that I'm hoping, you know, like ONDCP and you know, uh, the Office for National Drug Control Policy you know, really begins to try to, you know, do much more in this area because we just need more medical services to deal with this disease.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also think there's a lot of opportunities for providers to get more involved. You know, like you're talking about some of what you're doing with Karen. Yeah, I mean, just out of curiosity, I've gone to providers and sat in on the pharmaceutical rep lunches that they have, right? And they're getting those lunches consistently. And so what they're hearing in those lunches is that, hey, here's the pill, here's the fix, give it to them, and this is going to fix their depression, their OCD, their anxiety, right? But we don't have providers coming in saying, you know, here are actually what we have to do on our end to help people build the skills and the behavioral thought patterns and really work through addiction and mental health issues, and so, if you can start having those lunches and having a voice in the conversation, um, I think it would go a long way to maybe helping educate some of the medical professionals out there.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and and since you know, we've become the microwave society, we want to push a button everything is really fast. I mean, you know, we've got that even now with our, you know, with our phones. I mean, in the old days, if you wanted to know the, you know, the capital. Uh, a country you were unfamiliar with, you'd have to wait till you got home. You'd look at, you know, you'd have to look it up in, a, in an atlas. Today, you just say, Siri, you know, what's the, what's the capital of Thailand? And it'll tell you. Um, you know, we've got the same, I think, as it relates to our medical uh, situation, is a pill. Um, you know, some type of medicine is much, you know, is seen as an ideal so- solution as opposed to the work that recovery requires. And, and, you know, and that's been one of the real challenges for recovery is that by and large society has always looked at the recovery process as kind of an acute episode. You go to 28 days of treatment, you go to detox, you go to a halfway house, you know, there's you know, some kind of finite number of days and you're going to be cured. And I, I think in the last couple of years, we've finally done a better job at helping individuals understand as a chronic illness, you know, it, it, it's a journey and it's going to require a a variety of different levels of of care, and that if one part of this journey is uh, unsuccessful, it doesn't mean that recovery isn't going to work, doesn't mean the treatment was poor, it doesn't mean that you were a bad person because you didn't make it work. We don't do that for any other kind of illness, but uh, it's part of, it just means you need a higher level of care, and you need more care, Uh, so we're making some progress on that, but It's something that we, you know, that again, for most Americans, we'd rather have something quick as opposed to something that's longer.
1: Yeah. You know, I always equate it to physical health having a lot of similarities to mental health. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a physical process in there somewhere, right, in the brain. And you can't just go and take a diet pill and suddenly have better nutrition and, you know, have a healthier body. That requires dieting, you know, in a nutritional sense where you're eating the right foods and it requires going to the gym or working out. And so there's a lot of work to that that people don't necessarily want to put in. Totally agree.
0: That, that, that's an ex, that's an excellent analogy. And we, we try to do that with the comparison, whether it's with diabetes, hypertension, weight loss. I mean, all of those some medicine is, is involved, just like there is with um, you know, with uh, recovery from addiction. But it also requires some lifestyle change. It requires some daily discipline um, and it requires it requires something that you have to do on a daily daily basis. Right. To make right. it work long term.
1: Right. So, you know, in the medical professional, there's definitely kind of this one size fits all mentality that I've seen and, and for them, it's often you know, a prescription. But also, you know, this was kind of the situation. I'd still say it is for you know some areas of uh, the country or some providers. in a one size fits all to addiction treatment. What have you seen in your decades in the space? Have you seen this change? What do you think? Why Why do you think there was such a one size fits all approach for for so long, or why do you think providers are maybe a little bit more resistant to change in that regard?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and. Uh... You know, and what I have seen, and I can speak for again the org, you know, particularly the organization I've been with the last twenty six years, I think there's sort of sort of three things that come together. First of all, especially in the nonprofit facilities, and you have to remember up until probably about two thousand and ten, the vast majority of major substance abuse treatment centers in our country were nonprofit. You know, that has, you know, been changing pretty significantly since two thousand and ten. But the vast majority of nonprofit, by nature, nonprofit has a board of unpaid individuals who kind of represented the community. That board, by and large, was made up of people who've been through the program. So you have a board of individuals that are there, that are sober, that are enjoying life. And so their perspective on what works is what worked when they went through whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So by nature, the boards of nonprofit treatment organizations, including Karen, were very conservative. Now, this this worked. When I went through, it's, you know, it still works. It's still going to work today. Um, the second the second aspect of it, it has to do with that word I used called working. Um, not only was, was it working as far as, you know, a meaningful number of people getting well, but it also was working from kind of a financial perspective. Hey, we're doing okay. You know, this, you know, which leads to the third piece, which is, uh, you know, let's stay in our lane. You know, we, you know, I mean, in a great, we treat a couple thousand people a year, a couple thousand people a year. You know, we don't need to be all things to all people. Let's kind of like Kentucky fried chicken, you know, let's do one thing. Let's do it well. Let's do it right. It's a lot less expensive to keep doing the same thing as opposed to being innovative or experimenting. So I think, you know, as I, as I thought about it and when we've talked about it in the past, it's to me kind of those three things kind of coming together by nature kept nonprofits, including Karen, pretty conservative for all these years. And you know what, it was working fine. It worked well. We began to really challenge that with a couple of things one was it didn't work well for everyone and as we started to expand geographically serving other populations we realized that we had to look at some other at some other possibilities and I think the biggest one for us was the whole opioid heroin explosion that, a complete abstinence, non-medical model just didn't work. Too many people just didn't make it. And, you know, as we would you know, kind of uh, you know, look at the tragedy of that, we said, we've got to get better. Um, and, and there's also a good line. I think it was first said by Bill Wilson, and I may not have it exactly right, but it's something along the good or the seeming good is oftentimes the, the mortal en- enemy of the permanent best. If you want to get better, good enough isn't good enough anymore. And so that kind of became a mantra for us at Karen. And to that end, we said, we, you know, um, I grew up on a farm and my dad always, you know, said, you don't know what you don't know until someone who does know tells you what you don't know. Um, And we didn't know a whole lot about the medical side of it. So we recruited uh, people like, Chuck O'Brien from Penn, and David Lewis from, from Brown, and Keith Humphreys from Stanford, uh, Eric Strain from Hopkins, uh, John Kelly from Harvard, to be part of a medical advisory board at Karen to provide us with, you know, up, you know what, is, what is the updated research? You, you guys live in this every day. Uh, talk to us about what's on the horizon and begin to challenge us on what we can do uh, better. That also really helped us establish a very strong relationship with Dr. Nora Volkov, and you know, began chatting, you know, with her about what are the kind of things that, as if we want to be an industry leader, what are the things that we that we need to do? And and so a lot of that had to do with just strengthening our entire medical team. Um, you know, I still think back when I came to Karen in 1995, we had. Um, a doctor who came to Karen an hour a day we have a dozen physician full, a dozen full-time physicians today so making that commitment to really looking at this a, a, as an illness and making sure you have the expertise to deal with this medically along the way is important so for us that that was you know an important next step and and we couldn't have gotten there until we asked people who did know to tell us what we did not know and our board uh, embrace that because they really kind of went along the same path. As There's a lot that we don't know about this. We're lay people in recovery, provide us with the medical research, brain chemistry expertise that we need to help our patients increase the likelihood of recovery.
1: Kind of just thinking through a couple of things as you're speaking here, you know, one, we obviously work with nonprofit operators as well as for-profit operators. And I've seen that pretty consistently where the the nonprofit operators tend to be a little bit more laid back in that regard, mm-hmm. where there's just not the drive to push for, for new things as long as everything's working well, right? Yep. And yep. so a question I think that's interesting for you and just, you know, especially as you're talking, I'm thinking about it, but you know, as kind of private equity came into the space, there's a different mentality there, and that mentality is around growth, right? So we want to grow. And so, you know, as you kind of talked about, well, what was working for different nonprofits worked really well and it worked well for a specific segment or a demographic. And so there was no need to expand outside of that because it was going great. Whereas, you know, private equity comes in or just say more of a corporate mindset in general. And they have to scale, and they want to scale. And to scale, you can't focus on a single demographic. You have to focus on multiple demographics because different people are going to have different needs. So I think that really comes in. And then the optimization end of it, too, again, from uh, the more for-profit perspective, they're looking at how do we maximize revenue on this? And so what can we do to innovate consistently across the board, whereas a lot of the nonprofit providers we work with, it is like, you know, again, same thing. You know, I'll, I'll give some recommendations and, hey, we should try this or maybe look at this. And like, ah, you know, we made a couple million extra over projections compared to last year. So why bother? We're Good. <laughs> it's kind, yep. of the, yep. kind of the yep. thought process. So, yeah, your thoughts on on that evolving situation, you know, or just kind of perspectives from your own experience?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, again. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you've got you know, especially when it was working, especially when it was working, and kind of this idea of like let's stay in our let's stay in our lane. You know, we you know we don't want to be mental health. We don't want to look at uh, other you know, uh, other addictions. Uh, so I think there was a lot of that you know in in our field, especially when it was working. I think though that private equity know, has really kind of disrupted uh, the entire environment because what was, if you will, maybe prior to, say, 2010, um, was you know there was there was there were there was ample business for everybody. Uh, so. You know no facility had to worry that much about marketing didn't have to worry that much about being successful I mean yes yeah, yeah, some you know you couldn't be totally sleep at the well asleep at the wheel but pretty much everybody did okay but then when all of a sudden starting in 2010 with private equity dramatically increasing the number of beds dramatically increasing uh, uh, marketing dramatically increasing uh, what they could say about you know facilities, nicer facilities, better facilities, more facilities, different kinds of facilities. I think that was a real wake up call for many of the many of us in the nonprofit world is that you know we you know we, we have we, we do have to wake up. We can't just sort of go along with this good enough. Hey, it's working okay. We're doing okay. Because if we don't begin to make some pretty significant changes, upgrade our facilities, upgrade our staff, upgrade our treatment protocols, upgrade how we talk about ourselves, uh, we're going to, you know, w- w- we may we, we may be irrelevant a couple of years from now. So I think that was actually a very good thing for the field because it raised the bar for everybody. As we know, it also brought in some, you know, some poor you know, some people who probably colored outside the lines as it related to things like integrity and, and uh, licensing and promises and some of that. But, you know, that, 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 was an, that was the unfortunate part about it. But I think the overall positive of it was it, it raised the sophistication of the entire treatment field dramatically.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that assessment, especially you know, what I consider kind of the older nonprofits. There was some definitely some tendency to rest on laurels. Right. Yep. And yep. I think what a lot of people have realized is a lot of what work came through really strong and deep referral networks that had been built over decades. But as those referral networks kind of age out, you know, the professionals retire, that network doesn't work the same as it used to. And then, because, like you said, the our other providers, you know, for profit for sure, but nonprofits doing it as well, is marketing more, while they're starting to take over that mind share and that market share, and so that really changed the dynamic in the field for a lot of traditional providers.
0: The the thing that's interesting as I'm cleaning out my offices here to get ready for. Uh, Brad Sorty, when he comes in as the new CEO in, in July, again accumulated 26 years of uh, at Karen and almost 40 years uh, in, in the field. Um, uh, there's some things that I'm trying to share with him that he's just way too young uh, to have, uh, to, you know, have been a part of. But one of them was a book written by Stan Hart in 1987 called Rehab, and then, then he lists, uh, you know, that, like the 10 best treatment centers in the country. And what's fascinating is how many of them are not even here. Actually, it ends up being 20 on the list, but but well over half are no longer here. Uh, most of those were nonprofit. The biggest treatment centers in the country today aren't even on that list because they've come since 1987. So again, just kind of a, you know, it's good to understand a little bit of our our history, but to your point about resting on the laurels, many of those of the best in 1987, you know, I mean, they, you know, you you begin to believe your own press. You know, we're really great. We're really doing wonderful things. We're way out ahead of the game. And uh, by 2007, many of those weren't around anymore. And by 2017, even fewer were.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. You know, I've had a couple conversations with some of the CEOs of the larger nonprofits too. And sometimes There's an unwillingness to change, right? You know, it's like, well, this is how we've done things. This is how we want to continue to do things. And there's a desire not to look at the contemporary realities, you know, sometimes. And that change is going to come (laughs) whether you want it to or not. So that really leads into an excellent question that I I think, well, two things. One, can you give us a little bit more background in some of the different facilities that Karen has? Because I know you guys do different things in in different facilities. I think that might be helpful. And then talking about that change culture. So changing culture is always hard in an organization. How have you managed that process through all of these changes that we've been discussing here?
0: Yes. um, Great, great question. So, we have two residential facilities, one in Wernersville, the other is in Delray Beach, Florida. And for years, we were probably known as you know, one of the last bastions of facilities that did not do work with insurance companies. Uh, in 2001, um, you know, we, we decided to divorce ourselves from the insurance industry. Uh, we were going to be, you know, we became self-pay. And charity care pay. Uh, so philanthropy is an important part of our culture. We raise a significant amount of money every year, and so our goal was we're going to be um, we're going to be good enough that people are going to be willing to pay out of pocket. And for people who don't have the financial resources, we're, we will make sure we have enough charity care for them. And so that was really our are the way we did business from 2001 to about 2016. Uh, we began to first with Independence Blue Cross that eventually became All of the Blues and then Aetna and UPMC. But we decided uh, with that strategic plan, again, talking about making changes was, we said we wanna make Karen more accessible with uh, particularly you know, some of the results with the Affordable Care Act and, and what was going on overall from an insurance perspective in the country you know most Americans think that insurance should be paying for treatment and then you know how come it doesn't pay for it at, at, at Karen. So we decided to really embark on something that, as we say we, we came to the fork in the road and we took it. So in Pennsylvania we we in essence have two different kinds of programs. We have one program that we call core program of which insurance pays for. Um, the thing that's unique about that, it is not managed, and that's a, a significant part of our insurance contracts. We will not do a contract if it's if it's managed. So we get you know very nice length of stay. People can stay as long as they, they, they need to stay. We then have um, our signature programs, and those are self-pay, um, more expensive, a lot uh, you know, higher staff to patient ratio more amenities um, and the and the programs that fall in that category here are you know our executive program which in Pennsylvania we call Grand we have a, a lawyers program we have we have a health care professionals program which is interestingly enough paid for by most insurer insurers because uh, you know want physicians to get uh, uh, care in a program that is a you know, that does have a bona fide, you know, healthcare professional program and works with the state licensing board. And the other program that falls into this category in Pennsylvania is our older adult program, uh, not, not, not insurance, Medicare or Medicaid of any, any kind. Uh, interestingly enough, we do have a couple of insurers that are now paying for that as well. Um, that tends to be at least a six-week-long program, but the results for that population have been you know, terrific, and we are having some enlightened insurers saying it makes sense to, to pay for that. In Florida, we have uh, two really two programming. One is our Ocean Drive program, which is our ultra-high-end program, um, high-end executives, company owners, uh, people who really want a discreet very individualized uh, uh, program so that we call that Ocean Drive and then we have our Renaissance program which is a 90-day extended care program Um, and uh, oftentimes the individuals there have been to other treatment you know like a in fact many have been to Karen or other primary treatment uh, programs and they they, but they just need additional oftentimes a lot of uh, mental health comorbidity is is, is part of that. And then we have outpatient uh, programs in uh, D.C., uh, Philadelphia, um, here in Berks County, and then we, and, and Atlanta. And then we have out of our New York office, we have something called recovery uh, support services. It's not a, 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 an outpatient program. It's really more individualized programs for people when they uh, return from Karen to New York City.
1: You guys also allow family in the Florida programming, right? Which I think is a really unique.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Family, family is really important component of Karen. We, we kind of talk about like, we have like, sort of, if you will, three, three levels, our bachelor's, if you will. So bachelor's, master's and PhD program. So the bachelor's program is the typical four to five day program that is for every family that goes through uh, Karen, either in Pennsylvania or at, or at Renaissance. The master's is something we call our Breakthrough Program, uh, which is in Pennsylvania. It's the five-and-a-half-day program. You know, it's been called a lot of things over the years, like you know, codependency, uh, deals with, uh, you, know, any, you know, any other kinds of, you know, issues that can be related to the substance, substance abuse. Oftentimes people with five years of recovery will come back and do that program just because they want to move to another level of recovery. Uh, and then our, our Ph.D. program is what we would call family restructuring, which is a residential program in Florida where uh, we have the family members along with the primary uh, person who's in substance uh, use treatment, uh, typically a two-week program where they're living together. And it, uh, again, uh, for families that are extremely dysfunctional, this is, can be a real life changer for them. Um, oftentimes, the families might be, you know, blended families where, you know, divorced parents, you know, are, you know how, do, how are you going to deal with all of this in recovery? So we bring them all together for a couple of weeks, and it's amazing the kind of work that can be done, and we're restructuring that whole family dynamic, and, that's our P- and we call that our PhD program.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a lot. I actually didn't realize you had so many extensive, differentiated, you know, programs or tracks, especially with the lawyers and the older adults population. So you've built all of these out, and you know, kind of going back to that culture question, how how have you managed like the culture changes and shifts as you've added in these programs, as you've seen the changes in the treatment space? You know, how, how does that kind of play out?
0: Yeah, I think the two major components were that really had to do with. Uh, uh, challenging our staff that if in, until we get to a hundred percent recovery rate we need to continue to get better we need to continue to change um, having that blended with our medical advisory board uh, which was providing good research and, and data and, and medical opportunities on how we can get better has really helped us become over the last decade in particular really embracing opportunities to get better so um, and with that came research uh, we are you know we really started our research center in a modest way about five years ago uh, Dr. Joe Garbley our chief medical officer is, is uh, terrific in the research areas developed a wonderful relationship with Dr. Nora Volkov um, we are now uh, we've just started a, a major fundraising effort to uh, endow our research center so we don't have to be sort of dependent on yearly, yearly grants to the degree that we are. Um, but research has really made all of our employees uh, very excited and so some of the things, you know, we've got projects going right now with Stanford, Penn State, Hershey. Uh, some direct uh, uh, programs directly with the National Institute on Drug Abuse, where we have actually patients going down for brain scans down uh, down to Rockville um, in uh, in Maryland. Uh, we have functional near infrared spectroscopy. Uh, we're right now looking at a TMS study. Um, we two things that we're extremely excited about is is uh, some some brain scanning that we are working on with both Stanford and Penn State Hershey that has had an ability to predict uh, recovery or relapse at about an 85% success rate, um, you know, which we think is going to be a wonderful tool for our field. Uh, We need to now take it to R01 uh, status and get funding from uh, from NIDA to do that so that we have a bigger N. but just think about that as a tool for treatment centers, whether outpatient, inpatient, to be able to give somebody a test and determine, you know what, you know, in the past we use subjective information and say, you know what, you need to go to a halfway house. I mean, to actually have a tool to say, here's what the data shows us on what you need for your next course of treatment. Uh, we, you know, again, our field doesn't have any objective type tests. I mean, you know, whether it's know blood oxygen or PSA counts or white blood cell counts or any of those types of things so this is something that we're looking at for that another one that we're looking that is also has high potential is working with data that we have gotten from from NIDA trying to develop um, a test to determine whether or not you are susceptible to opiate addiction and the the practical nature of being able to use that kind of test would be a 17 year old goes in for their wisdom teeth and give the test and find out, wow, this individual has a high likelihood for opiate dependence and give different kind of pain medication. So, you know, we're kind of calling, you know, we're trying to come up with, if you will, like blood pressure cuff, you know, for. For the addiction field, we need to have some tests to provide us with some objective data. So we're very excited about about um, you know moving forward with our with our research center. Um, we've gotten some significant grants uh, to be able to hire some very uh, sophisticated staff to be able to run it. So we think that has a lot to do with the future of our field. Is we just need more treatment centers that are doing sophisticated high level research, not just about outcomes, you know, I mean, this is all about what do we need to do to improve treatment, improve protocols, things that we can share with the field that helps raise the bar for uh, recovery everywhere.
1: I think that's really wonderful work and so needed. To your point, there's just a very large lack of data and a lack of research around it. The challenge, I think for a lot of people it's always you know, Ben, where does the money come from though? Money. Right. And so I'm curious on, I mean, obviously you guys raise a lot of donations and, and charity, which is, and, and as a nonprofit, you can apply for grants, but additional thoughts around if you're a smaller provider, if you don't have the donation base, support base that Karen does, you know, what are your thoughts on sponsoring research or trying to do internal research along these lines?
0: A great question. I think everybody needs to be involved in it somehow. I so said, we're, we're, Blessed in that you know we'll raise over 20 million dollars this year, uh, probably five or six of that for research, so that you know we're, we're now have a dedicated building, dedicated staff, uh, and once you have dedicated building and staff, you you know they then also get involved with writing grants and developing academic affiliations that you know, with, with other institutions, particularly, um, you know, high-end universities that are getting grants, as I mentioned, you know, a couple that we work with are Stanford and Penn State Hershey. So, if you're smaller and you can't do this, then the key, I think, is to try to find a local university that you can be part of their research studies, because they need patients, They need people to, uh, you know, that are willing to go through uh, the various uh, protocols, so that is something that you know a lot of facilities can do. You 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 know, find a local university that is working in this area and see whether or not you can provide uh, patients for that. And that's in, in some ways that's kind of how we got started initially. We were doing that with Penn and and Thomas Jefferson University, um, Brown, and the beauty of doing that is you'll eventually develop some staff that know how to do this um, on their own, and you can maybe get to the point where you can apply for your own grants.
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of opportunity out there, right? And then obviously the the university is doing the work and supplying for the grants and you're just supporting that research and they're obviously gonna give you access to that data after it's done.
0: Correct, and it really, I think it helps every treatment center's brand to be affiliated with you know a university that's doing research. So again, I mean, it, it helps Karen's brand uh, to be affiliated with, like, the institutions that I just mentioned. They, you know, they probably don't talk about us a whole lot, but, we, we, but we're but we always very proud to talk about that relationship and, you know, have the, you know, papers that are published that we both are involved with. It, it's, and I think it adds to credibility for, you know, any patient that comes to your facility. You know, I've always contended that any institution that's willing to do follow-up, to do any kind of research, is always kind of a cut above because they're interested in improving interested in knowing what they're doing, committed to trying to, you know, move the bar up somehow some way. And, yeah. and I, I think that's a, you know, an important feather in any treatment centers cap to say, you know, we're one of those we're you know it may not be perfect, but we want to get better.
1: I completely agree. I mean, obviously this is a huge value to the field overall and to your, individual facilities or programs, you know, to have that relationship and to have that data coming back. But, you know, we listen to calls of our clients, and we've got some high-end clients that, you know, charge 60, 70 grand a month to come into their treatment programs. And those clients tend to have relationships with prestigious universities. And the people calling reference the studies pretty consistently. You know, they're like, hey, you've got this relationship with this Ivy League university over here. This is why we're calling you. So I, I completely agree. That's important to them.
0: It's a real differentiator. And and I think it provides a ton of credibility for our industry, which you know, which we always are. You know, we you know we we're, we were kind of at the end of the line twenty years ago. We're making some progress, but we're going to continue to need that credibility.
1: Right. yeah. So Karen has been really intentional, and we talked about this in some previous conversations where. You know, we talked a little about the private equity coming in and changing the space a bit, but you guys also know who you are, right? And you've been intentional about the the scale and the size that you want to be, which I think is really smart. You know, you're not saying, "Hey, we want to be everything to everyone." This is who Karen is. This is who we serve. We want to expand that a bit, but we're not, you know, we're not going to be everything to everyone. So, can you just talk a little bit about through that that decision process and why you've restricted some of the the growth or the opportunities as you you know continue to build? about what Karen offers
0: Karen um, when I came in 95 uh, you know we were a s- small regional organization and, and we really once we got stabilized it decided to become a growth organization I'm just sitting here looking at some, some charts for a meeting I ha- have tomorrow and in the first five years our our um, net assets doubled in the next then we then then if you take 2005 to 2010 our net assets doubled again Um, you take 2016 to 2020, our net assets went up about 40%, so intentionally slower. Uh, And we made that decision in 2016, and it really had to do, um, you know, we had really viewed ourselves as a growth organization um, from probably about 2000 to 2015. And when we did our strategic planning in 2016, we kind of looked around with what private equity was able to do with investing capital marketing um, involvement with the internet, et cetera. And we said, we can't, we can't compete with that. And we don't want to spend our resources on that. We'd rather spend our resources on how do we continue to improve quality? How do we, you know, let's get more involved with research. Let's, you know, training physicians with an ACGME program. Those things were really important to us, and we said something's got to go. If we want to try to market and continue to grow, we probably can't. We don't have the money for research, training, outcome studies, et cetera. So we made a very conscious decision in in, uh, in that strategic uh, plan program to really not continue to grow at the same rate. And we actually became smaller uh, from a uh, from a total bed capacity. We sold our Texas facility. We sold Hanley. Uh, we were in Bermuda, and so we kind of looked at in 10 years, do we anticipate? You know, what 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 will that look like? And we we just really you know, our strategy became something that we called double down. We said let's double down on what we're doing in um, Wernersville and at Renaissance. Let's improve our facilities there. Let's improve our staff there. Let's do more research. So our revenue is actually flat then from 2016 to uh, 2021, you know, that, this last five-year period. Our net assets have ended up growing by about 50% during that time because we have raised money for buildings, endowment, endowment so that we can pay for research, pay for physician training, pay for outcome studies. So it was, we said, let's, and and during this time, let's get better at what we do. And I think the better part has had to do with why we're able to get insurance contracts that are not managed. Very, very rare in our field. And we're able to do it because they the insurance companies actually are, looking at our recidivism rate, which they know because, you know, someone has to go to treatment again. They certainly know that. And we're able to provide value to them with uh, significantly reduced recidivism rates. Um, How do we get better for people who have choices? Hence the, you know, executive programs and the ocean drive program. So it was a very, very conscious choice that we made, which was we let, we don't have to get bigger. Let's just get better
1: yeah I'm a huge advocate of that you know I talked to a lot of treatment programs about that that you know there's no value in scaling just a scale in my opinion and you have to be differentiated because again everyone offers addiction treatment right and at some point it's not going to matter if you offer addiction treatment if the person across the street from you offers better addiction treatment or more focused addiction treatment and so knowing who you are and what you offer, I mean, even growing Circle Social, you know, I mean, I've got 26 full time staff now and consistently, you know, we've just completely shut off all of our marketing for half the year for the past two years. And we sit down and we say, okay, who are we? What do we need to improve? How do we make sure we have systems, processes and talent in place to deliver at a high level? Cause I know that if we had, you know, kept the marketing on and kept scaling up at some point, things would start to break, right? And we would lose a bit of who we are. We would lose the quality that you deliver. And same thing happens if you try to, you know, like let's say we did marketing for dentists or something, you know, suddenly you're in a new vertical and it's, you know, confusing things and you lose the expertise. So I really admire the fact that you guys look at that and said, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do really well. It's double down on it. And you build a competitive moat in that regard, right? Now, that's your reputation. That's why people come to you. Everyone knows that. And so you don't have to worry about the competition as much because over time, now you've got this whole you know medical and research center that you're building out. That's something that no one else is going to have. And no one is probably going to be willing to invest the money to build it either You know, because now there's a cost barrier to it. So I think all of those elements of focus really allow organizations to be successful long-term versus, you know, just trying to grow and then competing with everyone else um, without really any kind of specific differentiators in place.
0: Well, yeah, Thanks for mentioning that. And again, we, you know, we, we talk about oftentimes this, that this isn't not necessarily better, but it's better for us. And that's the piece about knowing who you are because I have, I regard and great respect for institutions that have been able to really understand and make population management mm-hmm. work. Uh, you know how do you you know how do you treat more people and provide them with an adequate level of care? I mean that really requires great level of sophistication. And we and I said we we chose not to go that path. We decided to take the path of, of if people have choices, we want to be on the short list of the choices they consider. And it's just, a, it's just a different model than draw a 60-mile radius around Warnersville and we want to make sure we are able to treat all the people within that 60-mile radius. There's plenty of others that, that are there to, to treat some of those, but we want to be that facility where, you know, you're sitting in Chicago and you say, I'm looking for the best place for my college A son. I'm looking for the best place for my 72-year-old mother. I'm a, I'm an I'm a lawyer in a law firm in Kansas City. Where is the best place for me to go? We we want to be on those short lists.
1: Yeah, you build up that reputation, you build up those referral networks, but then the things like the Stanford, for example. I mean, no one you can't just walk up as a treatment provider and say, Hey, Stanford, we'd like a relationship. You know. <laughs> So, you know, and they work with you because of the quality that you're known for. You know, it's another reason that Stanford's willing to partner, right? And so all that comes together to build, you know, a defensive moat around the organization that allows long-term sustainability and allows you to focus on what you're doing well. Because, you know, ideally in those situations, whether it is a for-profit or you have supporter and charity revenue coming in, people are coming to you for that reason. And they're willing to continue to provide you that revenue for that reason. It, it just creates a... An organization that doesn't have to worry about finances so much
0: and the one thing i would say is i mean i've oftentimes been asked to do different presentations about how we got here and i and i use the analogies you can't oftentimes you can't get here from where you are you have to build a path and and the big part of this path is philanthropy if you i mean The things that we do, we would not be able to do without philanthropy. And so an organization, again, I'm now talking to any nonprofit, has to have the stomach and the commitment long-term to philanthropy. It's not a fly-by-night thing. You've got to really be in it for the long haul. And, uh, you know, I, I look at what we've been able to do, whether it's new buildings, new programs, research, physician training program, outcome studies, our student assistant programming. Um uh, I mean, philanthropy made that possible. If we didn't have philanthropy, you know, we would not be able to do these things. So that's an important ingredient to having the financial wherewithal to do this because the the margin on the programs is just wouldn't wouldn't get yeah. it done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's you know, definitely worth a, maybe a future conversation on the show too, because it's something that you know a lot of people need need help and experience with. So you're actually transitioning out of the role, right? As you mentioned, Brad Sorte is coming in. I think, I think kind of two questions around it. One, in an article that was in Treatment Magazine recently, you mentioned that there is still a, a radical need for change in the field. And so as you kind of transition out and Brad transitions in, you know, what is that radical change and what do you think that people um, or providers need to be looking at as they move towards the future?
0: I think a big piece is, is kind of going almost back to the how we began the conversation is that connection to the primary care physician. I mean, I know Brad and I sh- still share the the same vision that you know, in a perfect world, wouldn't it be wonderful if the recovery process starts with the you know, sitting in your doctor's office and he refers you to a board certified doctor in addiction medicine, who then uh, gives you an appropriate level of, you know, ASAM diagnostic criteria and determines that, you know, this is the level of care that you need to go to. And then following that care, six months later, when you're back at your primary care physician, just like with any other kind of illness, he would be or she would be the one determining how are you doing in your recovery? You know, are you indeed getting healthier so that we would get you know, long longitudinal data that's really driven by the healthcare field on getting it into treatment and then determining whether or not you're actually continuing on in recovery, just like we do for cancer, diabetes, and everything else under, under the sun. That, that's, I think, the vision that both Brad and I share. We've done a number of different talks about, about that, you know, kind of looking at, here's, here's how the medical model works for every other kind of illness, Here's how the medical model doesn't work for addiction treatment. Any other kind of illness, if the person doesn't get well, you don't blame the person and you don't blame the treatment. But somehow, some way, in, in our model, if the person has a relapse, we blame the person or we blame the treatment model. Yeah. And radically different as opposed to in, in others where, you know, like if, it, you know, if it's uh, cancer, you know what, we need to... You know, we need to maybe move up a, a notch in, in whether it's chemo, radiation, combina- surgery, whatever. And it's all taken together as opposed to, you know, in our field. Uh, geez, they went to uh, outpatient. They relapsed, and well, outpatient doesn't work, which is. Totally erroneous.
1: I really like that idea. I actually, I hadn't thought about that aspect of the the primary care physician connection because you're right. You know, then at least you have a locus of the data. Whereas right now, if people are hopping around treatment centers, you know, that gets lost. You know, they hop insurance providers. But if you keep that family physician, that's actually really it's really important.
0: I mean that that's that's our land on the moon vision for what. can look like and the beauty is brad's young enough that maybe he'll get a chance to see (laughs) see that that vision come to fruition so
1: brad's coming in and you actually had a pretty extensive succession process in there you know i i don't think it was the same as maybe jack welton ge but i think there was definitely a lot of preparation work that went into it right and you have been an advocate of really thinking thoughtfully about how that's done so can you give us one, your thought process around it, and then two, what you've learned throughout the process as you you know, chose Brad and he's moving in?
0: Sure. Well, the one thing, uh, I, I being, again, having the, play, the good fortune of being in this field for 40 years, I have seen a lot of terrible succession planning. I've seen some good ones, but unfortunately, I've seen with really good institutions a lot of really haphazard, Poorly planned, poorly executed succession plans, where oftentimes the new person comes in and you've got a divided organization. The person is not poised for success. Good organizations tend to overcome that, but it's like, why, you know, why go through a one or two years of, of misery? So so that was something that I was very intentional about with the Karen board, which has been terrific and we have very sophisticated individuals on our board uh, who understand succession planning as well. So I had a very receptive audience to talk about this. So when I hit 60, uh, which was a little over five years ago, and we began to say, we need to now be ready for this next lap. I said, I'm planning on, I would like to retire at 65 from the CEO position. I think it's time. that will be 25 years then. So my first challenge was to make sure that we had some internal candidates, and we started with a number of those. And we, you know, we used uh, uh, coaching internally. We looked for the gaps. Uh, also, always kept a list of external candidates too that I thought, you know, like, you know, there's somebody we should take a look at. So, so at the end of the day, when we started the process, um, you know, we had the, the thing that was really cohesive for Karen is that we had one internal candidate. Could have had three, could have had two, but the beauty of one is that, you know, we didn't have two or three internal people competing for the job and employees sort of in one camp or the other. And um, so Brad was our internal candidate. We did, um, a, you know, national cert, looked at, you know, a number of other really top flight people from, from the outside. But at the end of the day, I was thrilled that we went with the internal candidate because it'll be you know, a continuation of the culture, continuation of the strategic direction that we've uh, been working on. I will uh, be staying on for another year as senior advisor to just be available to, to Brad. Uh, Brad's been at Cairn for 10 years and so obviously knows our culture, knows our people, knows the plan and uh, so i i couldn't be I couldn't be more thrilled and I, and I think he's at a perfect age. I think Brad's like thirty eight i was um, so he I, I was forty when I became uh, CEO of Karen, so I kind of jokingly said to the board, if they do this right, you know um, one CEO every twenty five to twenty six years uh you know you, you, you save a lot of time and energy if you don't have to do that every couple of years.
1: Yeah, no, I think it was just really smart. And I think there's just so much value in that continuity and, you know, really kind of thinking through it. And I'm sure you're right that having board support is is super helpful there because otherwise, you know, it's like a battle. Any advice for other, whether it's for-profits or non-profits, you know, as they start thinking about that, you know, that five-year timeline, do you think that's smart? Any other advice around, you know, process that you would have to put in place that worked for you or that you know, you suggest would work that maybe you struggled with when you were implementing the one you had?
0: Well, the thing that I I will say this with my comp committee every single year, starting at probably about the year 2000, I actually, we had a plan like it was, you know, what if Doug gets run over by the red arrow bus? Mm -hmm. So who internally should be considered? Who externally should we look at and what's the short term plan? You know, like, again, God forbid something happens. So, so we all so that's something that I actually reviewed with my comp committee every single year. Like something happens to me tomorrow, who should be interim president, who should be internal candidates, who there are a handful of people externally, always an up-to-date job description and much more than that, kind of the responsibilities. And I also we have a search firm on retainer that that has done all of our executive searches for the last twenty-five years. And so they were, you know, so they're always ready. Again, God forbid something happened, but like in this case, they were ready to go. One, You know, most organizations, when they go to look for a CEO, the first thing is, okay, we got to interview three or four search firms and figure out which one we're going to have. We have one ready to go. They know Karen. They've done all of our executive searches. Uh, They know our executive team. They, you know, obviously, since they've done other searches here, they know some of the key people on our board. So we just found that save time, you know, made it efficient. We didn't have, they didn't have to come on campus and learn about who Karen was. They know us.
1: Yeah, no, I can totally see the advantage in that. So
0: those are the recommendations I would have is that you you basically are prepared every single year in case you need to do it.
1: Well, I wish you guys the best of success. You know, I know Brad a little bit. I'm sure I'll probably get him to know more of him later on, but really excited for, you know, you guys and that transition. Any final thoughts as we wrap up the conversation?
0: No, I, well, I'll just say I really appreciate everything you you do, Nick, uh, and the the information that you provide to our field is really uh, top top flight, and and it's something that for years we didn't you know we didn't have, and so I just want to say I appreciate all that you do because you help us all raise the bar as well. So I thank really you. Really appreciate
1: that. If someone wants to reach out to you or just contact Karen, what's the best way to do that?
0: Yep, yeah, I'm real simple. D, like my first initial, Tiemann, T-I-E-M-A-N, at C-A-R-O-N.org. All
1: right, well, thanks so much, Doug, for coming on the show. Wonderful information, you know, just amazing, illustrious career here, and I think Karen has done so much for the field as well as it's come, you know, the past couple decades, and that will continue into the future. So I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Thanks so much, and hope you have a great one.
0: Uh, Thanks. Thanks much, Nick. Appreciate it. Talk soon.